So, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, somebody check the thermostat back there. Tell me what the temperature says there. It's been going up slightly. 67. Okay, that's cool. It's going up. It, it'll get there. I think there may be something wrong, but, you know, maybe because it's just so cold out as well. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit fire, the Holy Spirit fire will come down and fall upon us this morning. Amen? Amen. I, I do want to just encourage you, if you haven't gotten your boxes of envelopes, you know, please check out because you, 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 they may be waiting for you. And all we ask you to do is to fill them with money and bring them back once a week. That's all. I mean, you know, not a hard thing to do. So thank you so much. Amen. So uh, Tim Keller, I heard, heard Tim Keller uh, share this thought that uh, this present generation and, and, and the way that our culture has uh, come to be the way that we are uh, today is we, we don't really like to talk about struggling, suffering, pain, hardships, difficulties. We, we kind of like to sanitize it. We kind of like to, to, to get to the part where it's, uh, you know, to live happily ever after. And uh, I kind of agree with, with that perspective. And uh, just, to, just by way of example, just some of the old fairy tales uh, that used to talk about some of the difficulty before they ever got to the you know, live happily ever after. For, for example, uh, Cinderella. Uh, C- Cind- the story of Cinderella, right? She's orphaned. Uh, she suffers e- enormously by being enslaved. Before she ever finds the glass slipper and her life has changed, you know. Uh, the uh, story of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, is uh, a story that was written by the Grimm uh, brothers or the Brothers Grimm. Uh, whichever you prefer. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the story kind of goes like this, that, that because there was a party at the expression of this young baby's birth and this fairy uh, wasn't invited to the party, she put a curse upon uh, this, young, this young baby that at the age of 16, she would prick her finger and she would die. But a good fairy uh, kind of altered that curse and said, that what would happen to her is that she would, uh, she would, she would fall into a deep sleep, and and even at that, the, the deep sleep lasted for I don't know if you know this a hundred years, and during that hundred year period, her family mourned for her. Her mother died of a broken heart, and what and what the brothers Grimm kind of said at the end of this story about Sleeping Beauty was this. I'm going to quote it for you: They lived happily ever after as they always do in fairy tales, but not quite so often, however, in real life. You know, Disney would never put that at the end of a film today. You know, because we want to sanitize, we, we, we want to remove, we just, we just want to get to the point where we live happily ever after and not experience difficulty or suffering or, or, or hardship in, in any particular way. So, so what I want to do is I want to take that in relationship to the gospel and say, God forbid that we should ever sanitize the sufferings of Christ, that we should ever so want to remove, that we should ever, ever should be so much in a hurry to get to the everlasting part, to the part where we live happily ever after, that we forgot that it cost someone a tremendous expense 
to bring us to the place where we could live happily ever after. Okay, so this is called the mission. This is part three of the mission. In part one of the mission, I shared the mission, one of the mission statements of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're exploring some of the aspects and the purposes and the and the facets of the mission of Jesus Christ. And in part one, we said that Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That he didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And that's good news for all of us because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He came for every single sinner because there's none righteous, no, not one. Okay? In part two of the mission we, we, we quoted from the beloved Apostle John who said that the reason why Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what we said was that God sent a champion for us to crush the head of the serpent, which Jesus did at the cross, where he spoiled principalities and powers, or he stripped them and disarmed them of their usurping authority. And he made a public display of them openly by the triumph of the cross. In, in part three of this series, the, the message, I want to talk to you about something that is a little bit more shrouded in mystery. And the reason why it's shrouded in mystery is that while it benefits us and, and while we are, we, our socks are blessed, you know what I mean, Be, because of, of, of this aspect of the mission of Christ, nevertheless, it is an exchange that took place in a mysterious way between God the Father and God the Son. Nevertheless, we're, we're given a little glimpse of this, and even a small glimpse of this is enough to, to strengthen us, to empower us with the love of Christ. So here's the, here's the statement that I'd like to kind of share with you this morning. Uh, in fact, let, let me just hold off on that. Let me, let, let, let me, let me give you... Uh, an example of what I'm trying to say, e- e- even though what we're talking about is, is somewhat shrouded in mystery, you know? Uh, I want to share a verse of Scripture with you. You're not going to think it's a verse of Scripture, but it is uh, a translation anyway. Now, here it is. The vodka was great, but the meat is rotten. Believe it or not, that was a translation from, from, from Russian... Uh, from English, rather, into Russian during the Cold War that was put out by a a billion-dollar supercomputer to translate the Bible, right, from from English into Russian. The vodka was great, but the meat was rotten. The verse that it's referring to is Matthew 26, 41. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, you know? (laughs) Something is lost in translation, right? I mean, it just goes to show you how hard it is to, to communicate some concepts, some, some deep concepts when there's a language kind of barrier, okay? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to take that, uh, and I wanted to sh- just share with you briefly on expounding on this idea for a moment. Uh, I got an email from uh, Ted, the missionary uh, to Cambodia. Uh, who was relating about some past events that took place during the Christmas season uh, there in Cambodia. And in his email, he he points out 
that for the most part, the Cambodians have missed the simplicity of the message of Christmas, of Christ coming as an infant. And one of the reasons, he said, is because the word that is translated as salvation by the Cambodians, and this is where they've missed it for so long, is the word sacrifice. In other words, they translate the word salvation as sacrifice. And so to them, the concept of salvation is self-sacrifice. Rather than it being the gift of God, rather than it being what Jesus Christ has done for them, they're talking about, they're perceiving that this acceptance comes through their own self-effort and through their own self-sacrifice. And so what what, what Tim said was that they purposed to, to, to simplify it by, by, the, by the reference of new birth, spiritual birth. And, and what he said was in his email was that even the Buddhist monks were beginning to respond to the Christ child. That when they understood it as a new beginning, a, a, new, a transformation, they began to respond. And this is what he writes. He says, this Christmas... We went to great efforts to make sure that everyone who came to Christ realized that they had nothing to do with it, nothing to do with earning their relationship to God, but that it was the free gift of God through faith. And the results, he says, he says, were amazing. He says, during Christmas, and some of the churches were celebrating Christmas for more than a week, 20,000 Cambodians were born again during that Christmas period. 3,000 in the providence of Chow Cho alone, he said, were born again. Because of the use of, of, of one little concept that was, that was altered. Now, I'm going to talk to you this morning about a concept that is not easily understood by us, but probably was much more understood and apprehended by the people in the first century and by Paul and those of his generation. Here's, here's, here's my statement. Nothing so displays the dimensions, the height, the length, the breadth, the, love, the depth of the love of Christ as his becoming a curse for us. I want to talk to you about this concept of what it means for Christ to have been made a curse for us. So first, I want to look at the verse that states that, and then I want to look at the context And then we're going to look at what was going on in the church that Paul wrote this letter to, the the church of Galatia, okay? So first the verse, Galatians 3.13 is the verse, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made, and I want to emphasize two phrases in this sentence, being made a curse for us, the words being made and for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. The mission of Jesus simply stated was to render a, a, an obedience of faith to the law of God and thereby neutralizing the curse on behalf of his people. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The mission of Jesus. And, and, and to understand all of this, again, I want to say it's, it's shrouded in somewhat mystery because, because for the most part, the transaction that took place was a transaction that took place between God the Father and God the Son. But that doesn't mean that we don't endeavor to, to try to even get a little glimpse of it because even a little glimpse of it 
has enough power to change our lives. A concept like this is something that we are so dependent upon the Holy Spirit for. Because the the Bible says that the natural man doesn't understand the things that are of God. They are spiritually discerned. Neither can he receive them. So we, we, we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit. I think that's why Paul Paul prayed for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, he said that God would grant to you the spirit of, of, of might, that God would strengthen you with might by the spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you with all the saints would be able to comprehend what are the dimensions of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. You know, the amazing thing is that is that is that that Paul just didn't pray that we would have insight or that we would have understanding, but he said, he said, I pray that you would have spiritual power and might, because this is beyond this is beyond natural comprehension. To get a, to get a glimpse of the measurement of the height, the depth, the the length, and the breadth of the love of God that surpasses knowledge, and because it surpasses knowledge but it's to be communicated to us by the Spirit because the Spirit himself has come to shed abroad the love of Christ into our hearts. Now, let's look at the context. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, All, all, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed, is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous or the just will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ, here's the verse, redeemed us from the curse of the law, Becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who, hang, who hung on a tree. He redeemed us. Now notice what the goal is. The goal is, is, is not just to, as glorious as that is, Paul sees something even more infinitely blessed than, than just being delivered from the curse. Now, if that's all it was, that would be great, right? But, but Paul says that the goal of God is, is something beyond that. He says he has redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the, of the Spirit. That we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit so that now that you and I as believers in Christ could live for God, listen, from God. We could live for God not as God being somewhere out there, but God being dwelling within our very hearts and living from the very power that is at work in us. The same exceeding great power that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead. Living from God is so much greater than just trying to live for God and trying to live by by the observance of rules and regulations. This is relationship. So, what's going on in this letter that Paul has written to the Galatians? What Paul is, 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 is doing is he is so serious about, about this idea of legalism 
that he actually begins the, the letter in the first chapter by pronouncing a divine curse upon anyone. He says, he says if, if we, he says, or if an angel from heaven comes and preaches unto you some other gospel other than what you first received, let him be anathenim is the Greek word, which means to be cut off, accursed from the covenant of grace. That's how serious Paul viewed this issue of legalism that is of trying to perfect what God has already perfected in your own human strength and in your own ability. Legalism is what Paul was fighting against. Listen, Paul wasn't dealing with the problems that were created by by the philosophers of Athens. It wasn't the atheists or it wasn't the agnostics that came in among the the believers there in Galatians and troubled them. It was what, what Paul called the Judaizers. They were Jewish slash Christians from Jerusalem who came among them and said, it's okay for you to have faith in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. But you must also observe a kosher house. You must also observe the, the various 613 rules that Moses gave, the, the, the precepts of, of doing and the precepts of not doing that are found in the law. And Paul absolutely stood against that vehemently to the point where in, the, in, in Galatia, Paul reminds them that when he came among them and saw Peter, who had been taken by the influence of these Jewish Christians who came from Jerusalem and began to influence them. And Peter began to withdraw himself from the Gentile believers, not wanting to defile himself. And Paul withstood him, rebuked him to the face. Because legalism is one of the greatest affronts to the gospel of grace. It is one of the greatest insults to the cross of Jesus Christ. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It will never be. It could never be. But according to his mercy that he saved us. Now what I want you to know is that Paul, in writing to these believers, would say, would say stuff like, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had evidently been crucified, are, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Having begun in the spirit, are you now perfect through your own human effort and energy? He says, you're under a curse. Whoever of you are justified by the works of the law, by your own performance, Christ, he says, is dead in vain. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul says, for if righteousness could come from my own performance, then Christ didn't have to die. I mean, it just is so logical that it just makes so much sense. So Paul's argument here is that the law brings no blessing, but in fact, it brings with it the curse. The covenant brings with it the curse. Far from justifying men and women in the sight of God, it condemns men and women in the sight of God. That's what the law was given for, to demonstrate our absolute wretchedness and our absolute depravity apart from the grace of God, that we need a Savior, that that the law was given to be a tutor to teach us of our necessity for Jesus Christ. 
if the law imparts no power to keep it, right? If it just tells us what to do, but it doesn't give you the power to do it, then in fact, what it, what it does is it brings us into this spiritual bondage. But faith, and I love this, that faith is the hand that lays hold of, of Jesus. It lays hold of righteousness. It lays hold of the blessing. And that faith, beloved, is, is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God, the Holy Spirit, comes on the inside of believers to enable, to, to empower, so that the fruit of the Spirit is brought out in us. And against such, the Bible says, there is no law. So Paul is, is speaking to these believers. And so here's the question that I want to kind of pose to you this morning. What then is intended by the curse of the law? What, what is the curse of the law? It is the consequences. It is the penal consequences for breaking the laws of God. And it is sorrowful. It is anguish. It is woeful. It's, it's, beyond, it's beyond description. It is, it is the result of, of, of breaking God's commandments. Now, let me just say this about the commandments because the, there's a separateness and what we call is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial law. The Bible says that we are not under law, but we're under grace. But does that mean that we go on stealing or we go on lying? Of course not. The New Testament is filled with the exhortation, let him who stole steal no more, you know, but let him work and labor with his hands. You know? Lie not one to another, you know. Certainly God doesn't want us to, to commit murder. In fact, Jesus has so elevated the, the, the requirements of God as to say that if you have lust in your heart or if you have anger in your heart, you are as guilty as if you had committed adultery or murder. Remember what Jesus said? Think not that I've come to destroy the Lord and the prophets. I've come to fulfill. My mission is to render a, a perfect obedience to the law and in the process neutralize the curse that's against his people. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Also, think that the, the law was given as a revelation of the holiness of God. I mean, how would we, what would we know about the creator's purity and his holiness unless he had revealed that about himself? That God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. That he is so opposed to sin that he detests him, he considers it abhorrent to him, that what is highly esteemed in the sight of men is an abomination unto God. And he will always have this posture towards sin because God is infinitely holy. To come under the curse of God is sheer terror and dismay. It's unspeakable anguish and sorrow, the ultimate destiny for those who are who, who come under the curse, it doesn't end at, at the grave. It only begins at the grave. And it goes on forever and forever. A New Testament writer by the name of Jude says this about, about the second death. This, this is what he says. He says, they're like wandering stars in whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And we know that Jesus himself spoke about weeping and gnashing of tea. This is where this message really gets heavy and it gets, 
it gets sober and it gets solemn for us. For to consider that, that this, is, this is the plight for everyone who, who does not repent and does not receive Jesus Christ as Lord or Savior. There's a, a sound reason why the Apostle Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. It's a fearful thing, the writer of Hebrews says, is to fall into the hands of the living God. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because sin is so detestable to God, we, we must never make light of sin. But men, come on, we, we joke about it. We take pleasure in it. We, we laugh about it. But God is always in the posture of being against it. Every evil, word, thought, deed, God stands against sin. He must because of who he is. Peter, another New Testament writer, to give us some glimpse of what the curse looks like, said this as a reminder to his readers. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So these are statements that are trying to help us wrap our mind around what the curse of God involves. Charles Spurgeon was no fire and brimstone preacher. He, he, he's, he was called the prince of, of preachers for a reason. He expounded the grace of God like no, like no other preacher did. In so, for, for, for so many years, he, he was a, a, a herald of the grace of God. But listen to what he writes. He says, there is a place of woe and horror, a land of darkness as darkness itself, and of the sorrow of death, or the shadow of death, excuse me, without any order, where, there, where the light is darkness. There are those miserable spirits who have refused repentance and have hardened themselves against the Most High, are forever banished from their God, and from the hope of peace and restoration. If your ear could be applied to the gratings of their cell, if you could walk among the gloomy corridors where damned spirits are confined, you would, with chilled blood and hair erect, learn what the curse of the law must be. That dreaded curse which comes on the disobedient from the hand of the just and righteous God the curse of God is to lose God's favor, consequently to lose the blessing, to lose peace of mind, to lose hope, ultimately to lose life itself. Being cast into eternal death is the most terrible of all, consisting as it does in everlasting separation from God and everything that makes existence truly life. Charles Spurgeon. The only way we will ever appreciate the grace of God, the only way that we will ever glory in 
this salvation is by understanding what we have been saved from and what we are being saved unto. Everyone. Here's the question. Next question. Who are they who are under this curse? Who are they that are under the curse? Obviously, it's those who outright reject Jesus Christ. But the point of the, of the book of Galatians is not to those who had rejected Christ, but those who had tried to add something to the cross, who had tried to add by their own performance and by their own good deeds, winning the merit or favor of God. And so this idea of legalism, that's why legalism is, is so mentally deranged because of the free gift of God. It's rejecting the free gift of God and trying to win God's favor in your own strength. Everyone who seeks to be justified themselves before God through self-effort. Everyone who tries to reach heaven by their own merits, who climb up the ladder of heaven by their own good deeds. Beloved, Jesus is our only hope. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The finished work of Christ is complete. We cannot add to it, neither take away from it. We do so at our own hurt. Some of the old hymns, you know, the the music is kind of outdated, but the words are still as fresh and just as, as relevant as ever. Let me just share a couple with you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. There is, there is no other solid place for us to stand than upon Christ himself. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That invitation When he was on earth, he said, come unto me, all of you who are burdened and and you're burnt out. You're trying to please God. Come to me and I will give you rest. He's the only one that can give us this rest where we have peace with God through the blood of God's son. That invitation still applies today, but he speaks it not from earth. He speaks it now from heaven and he still invites us to come to him so that we could find rest for our souls. Christ has redeemed us. He has bought us. He has ransomed us from the curse of the law. The curse has been lifted from those that believe. No longer to be fearful or dreading the the curse that may one day be, it will not be for those. Double jeopardy applies for, for those of us who are in Christ. God will not punish us twice for he has punished each of us once in his son. For God has laid upon him, listen, the sins of us all. God treated him as though he were the the worst of all sinners. And here's a great fact, that he was without sin. That, That This is what qualifies him to become the sin bearer. 
that in him was no sin. And therefore, as a result of that, because, because he never sinned, the curse had no right to him other than the only reason why he became, was made a curse was because of the love he had for us. It is the, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of the love of Christ has gone for us to so, to so remove that curse from us. There was no necessity that was upon him to suffer the curse because he had never sinned. And as a result of that, as a result of God making him to be sin for us who knew no sin, the transfer that takes place, that word again, substitution, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is, this is, this is beyond what we're able to explain. We could, we, we, we could just share it. We could just tell it. We could just proclaim it. There's a depth to this that I'll never fully comprehend, that Christ was made a curse. What does that mean? That Christ was made a curse for us. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was shown the cup of what he was to drink, when the horrors of hell and the grave were set before him and all that he was to be by being made sin for us, his soul, his soul was sorrowful to the point of death that he began to sweat great drops of blood. And I, I believe this with all my heart. Had he not been united to God in union with God, the God-man, he would have never survived the Garden of Gethsemane itself. He would have never made it to the cross. It was God sustaining him, enabling him to live through this tremendous sorrow. I can only tell you that what Jesus suffered was equivalent to, tantamount to an eternity of hell, of the worst that hell could possibly be. He suffered that for us as us so that we would not suffer that in the exchange that takes place out of this love, this incredible love for us. This is, this is love vast as an ocean, loving kindness like the sun. This is the, the, the measurements. And, and, and you know, we're only scratching the, the, the surface of the measurements. All eternity will Will, will contain greater dimensions and greater revelations of, of this love. You, there are some products today, if you want to buy a candle today, that they've got these stickers on the outside of the candles, that you could scratch the, the sticker and you can get a whiff of the fragrance that, that, that has the, the substance that is contained within if you, if you purchase the, you know what I'm talking about? All I'm doing this morning is scratching the surface so that we get a little bit of a whiff of the fragrance of, of what we have been saved from and what we're being saved to. This is the love of God to bring us to a place where we will live happily ever after. But in order to get there, somebody, somebody had to suffer beyond comprehension. Beyond, beyond knowing in that transaction that took place in those three hours of darkness on the cross when his appearance became so marred that he was unrecognizable as a human being. There was a lady by the name of uh, Shirley who uh, came from Texas, 54 years old, for her 
grandmother of three, for her 54th birthday, she, she, she kind of thought, I just need a little bit more excitement in life. We were talking about this in our community group the other night. These people who, 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 who do j- bungee jumping, you know, and you hear about the bungee cord breaking or, or, or them, them coming back and, and hitting the, the bottom of, uh, you know, hitting their head against this, like, bridge or something like that. And you hear about these reports, all the time, and the people still do it, you know. It's like, I just don't get it, you know. Here's this 54-year-old grandmother of three who, who decided that, that she wanted to parachute from a, a height. You know, she, so she signed up for this class. And from a height of 13,000 feet, she was going to jump out of a plane in a tandem jump, which means that her instructor and her were, were kind of, you know, tied together, and they were going to jump out of a plane, right? So, so on the big day, when, when, when Shirley and the instructor jumped out of the plane, you know, oh, just beautiful, happy birthday, you know? And, and they pulled the ripcord, you know, pulled the ripcord, and, and, and the chute opened up, but the chute began to become tangled. But every, every instructor has a, has a, has a, a spare, you know, uh, a, a parachute, and that too became entangled, and so it wasn't fully engaged, and so they began to spiral down to the earth, you know, at about 40 to 50 miles an hour, and, 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 and he, 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 began, he was trying to untangle it as best as he could, realizing that he was running out of time and most of all running out of space. And he said to her, he said, to her, he said quickly, he said, lift your legs up. And, and, and she didn't know why. He said that she, she thought to herself, my God, I'm going to die like this. God, help me. And he, he, he shifted his body underneath her, breaking her fall. She said, I couldn't believe it, but he had become my cushion. Impact came. When they hit the ground, Shirley got up and she walked away completely unhurt by the fall. Her instructor survived the fall. But for one arm, he was completely paralyzed from the neck down. He was interviewed by CBS. And uh, this is what he said to CBS when they interviewed him. He said, people tell me that it was a heroic thing for me to do. In my opinion, it was just the right thing to do. I mean, I was the one completely responsible for her safety. I don't know. I kind of hear the humble Jesus kind of say something maybe similar to that. We, we, we look at it as the champion being so heroic, but but maybe Jesus would say to us this morning that it was the right thing to do because you and I were his responsibility to provide our safety. I just, I just happen to think that Jesus would say that kind of a thing this morning. So consider with me this morning in closing the results of this sacrifice, that there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There is not now, nor will there ever be condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We are free from the curse of the law. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. No longer to be entangled in a yoke of legalism, of bondage, of slavery. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Shall it be God who justifies Christ? Shall Christ condemn us who died rather who is risen again from the dead? No. Apostle Paul says, no, no way. No way. My bottom line this morning is simply this. Love like this has made us more than blessed. We've been made more than conquerors through him who loved us. Before we could ever come to living happily ever after, somebody had to suffer what is tantamount to an eternity in hell. And Jesus did that for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that the Son of God has come to set us free. The Son of God has come and he has borne the penalty of the law. Though he didn't break it, yet we broke it, yet we deserve it, but he took our place. And I thank you that that was his mission, to remove, to neutralize the curse from my life and from the lives of many that are here this morning. But I just pray for for someone this morning who has not come to Christ yet, that they would come to Christ knowing that it's not their performance, it's not their good deeds or good works. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That they would come today and throw themselves upon the cushion of Christ who saves us from the fall, who so delivers us from the impact of the law that we could now live with him eternally blessed and knowing eternal life. I pray this morning that we would be strengthened today with the, with the might and the power and the strength that comes from knowing this, that the curse will never light upon us that it has no place in us, that the accuser has no place in us to accuse us or to condemn us because guilt and shame has, have been removed far from us as far as the east is from the west, so you've separated our sins from us. This is love. The dimensions of love that have been so displayed because Christ, you became a curse for us. We all said together, amen.